I think you're the first song leader that I've witnessed that has his own pit crew. This is, some of you back there may not have seen it, but when his son came up here and switched that battery out, that was, that was NASCAR level right there. I mean, it's like, I I could hear the, the air hammer going off while he was taking the, the bottom off that microphone. That was fantastic. Uh, I appreciate your interest in this series. I had some good feedback from all of you on this. And this morning, uh, John Priester, Ted Knight, began the class based on this series. And there were 55 in that class this morning. Now, th- that, and that's a, that's, a, that's a good group. I want you to understand, if you've missed out on that or you can't do that this, this quarter, fear not. We're hoping that this is the sort of teaching and the sort of class that will continue And I've got to give credit where credit is due. John Baker is the writer of the book, uh, Life's Healing Choices. And we can order that book for you. You can find it online. And you can use that book in your own classes or your own small groups. Feel free to do that. And Lord willing, we're going to start a, um, a small group step study that's going to be connected to Celebrate Recovery And again, Lord willing, in January of 2018, we're going to begin a uh, Celebrate Recovery event every Monday night here. So, but let's just take it a step at a time and go through this study. Um, Last week, the first healing choice, and there are are eight healing choices, and uh, these are the choices that help us heal from life's Hurts, hang-ups, and bad habits. Last week, we covered the first healing choice, and, and, and they, it matters that you start with number one. That I choose to admit the reality that I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing, and that my life is unmanageable. So after you've made this choice, you've chosen to believe in the reality of God, There is a question that follows, and that question is, what kind of God is God? We too often have some deeply held assumptions about God, and all of the preaching and teaching about God are not going to make any difference if what I'm saying about God is different than what Scripture says about God. Or if what you hear when you hear God is different from what God reveals about Himself and what is revealed about God in Scripture. The power of belief, even a wrong belief, is incredible. Um, Edwin Friedman has a book called Friedman's Fables. And in it, he tells the story of a man who believed that he was dead. And his family was really concerned about him because they said it's impossible to believe, that, that, to believe this and it, it's, it's ruining your life. And he said, well, I am dead. I'm fully convinced that I am dead. And so his family would argue with him and they would say, but look, you're, you're sitting down at meals with us. You're going about your life. Dead people don't do that. And he said, it's ridiculous for you to try to convince me otherwise because living people don't associate with dead people. So what you're saying just doesn't affect me. And he held on to his belief no matter what. They consulted psychiatrists 
who would try to work through his problems. And they said, why do you suddenly feel like you're dead? And he he would respond, I don't feel like anything. I'm dead. Dead people don't feel anything. They would consult doctors. And and, uh, they would consult clergymen, just whoever they could find. Ministers would come in to talk to him about the metaphysical aspects of living and being dead. And they said, you can't be dead. You're still here on earth. And he said, I don't know where I am. I'm dead, and dead people don't know where they're at. On and on it would go. Finally, they, they brought in the man's old family physician. They thought, if anybody can get through to him, it's this man. He's known him since he was a child. So the old family physician sat down with him and he said, I'm going to do a procedure here if you'll let me. He responded, I'm dead. There's nothing I can do one way or another. He said, okay. He said, now would you agree with me that the dead feel no pain and that the dead do not bleed? He said, yes, I would agree with that. He said, okay, now this procedure is going to be very simple. And he took out a scalpel and he made a little cut on the man's arm and the man started to bleed. And so the old physician said, see there? He said, what do you think now? And the man said, I realize I'm wrong. Dead people do bleed. (laughs) See, if you have the wrong belief, you can talk about God, but you're not really talking about God. You can claim that you know Christ, but you don't really know Christ. So once we admit the reality of God, we have to go a step further and ask, what kind of God is God? We may believe that he exists, but, and, and here's the important point in life's healing choices, do we also believe that God cares for us? Don't rush to answer that. Think about everything that you've heard about God. Think about the things that we're told about God. Think about things that you've heard neighbors, friends, and family. Think about how you feel about God on your worst days. Do we believe that he cares? Do we believe that we matter to God? Or do we assume, like many in the world do today, that we are insignificant? That's where a lot of hurts come from. It's where a lot of hang-ups come from. It's people believing that they are insignificant and that all human life is insignificant. Do we believe that God will help us? Well, these are the questions we have to ask if we're going to choose to admit the reality that we are not God the misperceptions about God lead to some difficult things and let me show you how this works and this is by no means an exhaustive list of misperceptions of God but it will show you that if we assume something about God I mean even even if we don't assume it consciously but we have it uh, uh, buried down deep within us And part of the process of being open and going through these healing choices is for us to realize these things and realize what it's doing to us. If we assume that God is an absentee landlord, that he did his work in setting up the creation and then he checked out, then it's very easy for us to believe that God's not paying attention. That God's not paying attention when we hurt or that God's not paying attention when we hurt others. If we believe that God is the doting grandparent who gives us whatever we want, then we just ask and ask and do whatever we want. We live our lives however we want. And we know that in the end, God will save us. Why? Because he's big and he's cuddly and he looks like Santa Claus. 
If we believe that God is the logical concept, that God is a matter of philosophy, that God is a matter of belief, then we are going to drive ourselves insane trying to get the doctrine exactly right. And if anybody tries to destroy our doctrine or our teaching or our philosophy about God, we're going to defend it. This is what I've called in other classes the, uh, the Jenga concept of God and Scripture. You know that game Jenga, where you've got all the little wooden blocks and you pull out one Jenga block and the whole thing falls down. We defend our Jenga fortress of God because we're really afraid that there's one pin that if somebody pulls it, it all comes down. But God's not a Jenga fortress. He's not a logical concept. He's alive. If we assume that God is an angry or abusive parent, then we're going to assume that Christianity is all about doing everything we can not to upset him or to make him mad. You may say, oh, I, you know, I, we, we don't worry about that. We're not worried about that. How often do we worry that in worship we're going to do something to offend God? I'm not talking about being disrespectful to God. But I'm also saying we ought to think twice that if we think that God is sort of a uh, a sensitive snowflake who has a chip on his shoulder and if we do the wrong thing he's going to march out of here in a huff then I would say that we don't really know God if God, if, if God is a neglectful parent then we might constantly ask ourselves why, why do these bad things happen why does anything happen where is God when we need him now in scripture you will see Text, psalms, the psalmist, the, the people of faith, they will ask, God, where are you? But in that process of grieving, in that process of calling out God, they come to know what God really is. And they're not left with the idea that he's an absentee landlord or a neglectful parent. If God is the fussy grudge keeper, if he's that all-seeing eye watching you, some of you don't know this song. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but I remember the words of that song. Watching you, watching you every day. Mind the course that you pursue. It's sort of like, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not shout. I'm telling you why. Yahweh is coming to town and if, if God is a fussy grudge keeper, then He remembers everything that we've ever done wrong, and He's just looking for that moment when He can catch us and say, gotcha! Or He's keeping it in His record book. And lo and behold, we tell you to ourselves, you know, I'll be that one person who'll get there on the Day of Judgment, and it'll be like, oh, by the way, you had one sin you forgot to ask forgiveness for. Sorry, but you're going to hell on a technicality. And that comes from the idea that God is this fussy grudge keeper. Now, this is, this is just meant to illustrate what misperceptions of God will do to us. It's not all of the misperceptions. And we can't go through each one of them and disprove them. But what are the, we can't ask ourselves, what's the source of such misperceptions? I mean, where do these come from in the first place? How do we get there? Is it just bad information? Is it because we haven't read our Bibles correctly? 
And some people have read their Bibles correctly, and they come up with the wildest ideas of God, or or they've read their Bibles diligently, let's say. The source of misperceptions is often hurts that we've suffered from others. So we've experienced broken churches, broken family members, broken friends. And it's because of their brokenness that they have hurt us in some way, and they have infused these negative misperceptions in our thinking and in our hearts. And we then relate that to God. I mean, it stands to reason that if you, um, it stands to reason that if you are um, in church, you're thinking, I'm going to learn about God. But our perception of these broken individuals is then projected on God. You know, I, I have a lot of, of uh, sympathy and a lot of support for all of you young parents. Because you know what I know, that often our view of God comes from the people who raise us, our own parents. And I want you to know that I'm on your side in this. And it must have been 20 years ago or so that I first became aware of how important that relationship is with our children. I'm, I'm driving through Russellville and I'm telling my, my oldest son about the story of Jesus and what Jesus did and what I know about Jesus and I'm wanting him to hear these stories. And I said, now, you know, when you hear all that, don't you want to be like Jesus? And he says, no, Dad, I want to be like you. And I get it. To him, Jesus is a story at that point, but I'm a real person. So I have to take that position that Paul took with a lot of the churches that he worked with, the apostle, when he said, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want you to know that you're you're probably anxious about that, like I was. We're on your side. We've got to help each other out. We'll get into that later in this sermon. But sometimes it's that brokenness that we experience from other people that causes us to um, have some bad ideas about God. Let me say this. The church, any church, doesn't always represent its Lord 100%. Churches are made of flawed human beings who need God's healing as much as you and I do. And families are made up of real human beings who need that healing just as well. And our friends, no matter how much we respect them, or maybe it's a minister that we look up to, and he fails. I'm going to fail you because I'm a messed up human being who makes mistakes. Can I have an amen? There you go. Thank you. See, I, I was out there in front of you on that one. But um, the other source of misperceptions are the hurtful events that we have suffered. Maybe it wasn't directed at us by somebody, but maybe something happened in our life that causes us to question. And this is what you find in the Psalms. This is what you find in Scripture. When the prophets and the kings and the psalmists are saying, God, why has this happened? And they're going through grief or they've experienced some kind of pain. It's too much to say that God causes pain. In fact, let me encourage you. Um, I was talking to some folks recently and they said, you know, we saw a great series on things not to say. 
when, when people are going through tragic experiences, don't immediately ask them, what do you think God's trying to teach you here? Because then all of a sudden, the source of comfort that they want to go to becomes the villain, the enemy that's tearing them up. God doesn't cause pain, but he may work through it to lead us to comfort. As C.S. Lewis said, it might be his megaphone to rouse a world, a, a, a hurting, sleeping world that needs to change. You know, it's disturbing when the fire alarm goes off. It's disturbing when the tornado alarm goes off. But you pay attention to it because it says there is a problem that you need to address. And we might be feeling pain in our life that may be the consequence of our own bad choices, or it may just be pain in our life, and maybe we need to respond to it and ask what God can do in this. This is the meaning behind a verse that's often misunderstood, Romans 8. I like this translation. We know that in everything, God works for the good of those who love him. He's not saying that God makes everything work out good if you love him. This is not a bet. This is not a contract. This is not an agreement. But the best way to translate that is to say, in everything that happens, good or bad, God can work for good for those who love him, meaning those who are in step, who have a relationship with him, who are trying to seek God's way over their own way. A little phrase that we use sometimes in worship. Let's do it. God is good all the time, but you know like I do that, that we don't always feel that way. But we rehearse that statement because what we're saying is we're saying that even in the bad things, God can change it to something good. And it may surprise us. And it may astonish us. And we have to be honest and just admit that sometimes we don't feel like that. But Paul, later on in that verse, says, so what do we say about this fact that God's on our side? He said, if God is for us, then no one can stand against us. And God is with us. He even let his own son suffer for us. God gave his son for all of us. This is why the cross becomes important. It's not just an emblem or a backdrop for Christian thinking. The cross is a horrible event. It is not the way things are supposed to be. It was the Roman Empire's method of not only execution, but of humiliation. And through the power of the resurrection, God transforms it into an instrument of healing. That's the gospel. And so... There's a mystery here, but it's a mystery that we can learn. It's a mystery that we can see that God is at work in salvation. And here's what I want you to understand, too. God's salvation project is bigger than you. You know, we often speak of the love of God and we say, if there was no one else, if there was no one else that God, you know, that Jesus gave his life for, if it was just you, he'd still do it. Okay, true true in, in concept. But there are other people. You know that and I know that. There are billions of people. So nice idea, but the reality is God is in the business of saving so many people. And here's the thing. He doesn't just want to save me. He wants to save you. And he wants to save our relationship with each other. 
And he wants to save our relationship with the other people that we dwell with. And he wants to save the world that we live in. You see all of that in Romans 8. Where this creation that God made is saying, Oh, we'll be so happy when you, the children of God, get it right with God. Because then we're going to stop suffering the curse that happens. Because you have to have things your way instead of God's way. God's got a huge salvation project. And he's working through all of this. So sometimes when we say, why doesn't God do something? He is. He's on our side. He's got a huge process, a project, a salvation project to save you and to save I and to save all of creation. And to save all of time. So, God is on our side. But understand that when Scripture says God is for us, That doesn't mean that he's for us to do whatever we want. Hey, God, I'm going to go out and burn ants with a magnifying glass. Hey, whatever you want to do, I'm on your side. Hey, God, I'm going to go fill my body with a bunch of poisons. Hey, whatever you want to do, I'm on your side. You know, God, I I think that, you know, just, you know, one sexual partner is not enough for me. I think, you know, it'd be, I mean, can't we just share the love and, you know, just everybody be happy? Hey, whatever you want to do, I'm on your side. It's not... That's not how it works, because that's where the hurt comes from. That's where the pain and the brokenness comes from. God's on our side to be blessed and happy as he defines it, as Jesus means blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. And because of who God is, we know he's on our side. And here's three reasons why he's on our side. First of all, he knows. God knows. We try to hide our hurts and failures from God. We keep it from one another. And you know what? I'm going to be honest. There's some things about our hurts and, he, and, and, and brokenness that we don't need to be sharing with everybody. I'm just going to say that. But I'm not saying we should hide it and ignore it. And we certainly begin that honesty with God because we can't hide anything from God. But it's hard to name. It's hard to name when we confront our Creator. Because we think, you know, I'm broken, I'm messed up, and God's perfect. Is Yeah, he is perfect. But he knows. Read through Scripture. God has rebellious kids. God's got a whole nation of people that he called his, his chosen people, and they would rebel against him. God has had an unfaithful bride. I had a good friend who called me years ago, and I'd lost touch with him. And he was actually living outside the country, and I said, what's, what's going on with you these days? I haven't heard from you. Now, what I did know was he had, he, he had gotten married, and on the first day of his marriage, he found out that his wife had been unfaithful to him. And that sent him into a spiral. He broke up with her, and he felt like he had just wrecked everything, and that God couldn't have anything to do with him anymore. So he tells me that story and how he's feeling about all this and how that had led him to wander away from God. And I said, and this is one of those moments where the the Holy Spirit is working, and I said, listen, I I want you to read Hosea, okay? Just read the book of Hosea, and then we'll talk. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet, and God says, Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman, and guess what? Uh, she's the town prostitute. 
And he's saying, this glorifies you how, God? Uh, And it's God's message to an unfaithful people that he feels like his people are often unfaithful to him. My friend read that, and he said, I get it. God knows what I'm going through. I said, exactly. He knows what you're going through. He is your greatest friend in this. God's accustomed to a mess. See, this is where when God is a, is a logical concept or where God is some sort of divine creature like the Greeks perceived him as, then he can't ever touch anything unholy and has to dance around very carefully. But when you read Scripture, God is rolling up her sleeves, his sleeves and he's getting into the mess. He's used to it. He knows what it's like. He's adventurous. He is not afraid. You read Isaiah, and there's God. His robes are are stained with blood, and he says, I've won the victory. In other words, I did the dirty work so that you can be saved. And then our God, in the form of Jesus Christ himself, comes to us as a human being and goes through the pain and the suffering of the cross to say, I know about pain and suffering. And the crucifixion takes place not on some gilded stage with heavenly lights, but it takes place outside the city dump, which stinks and burns. And is a place where the worst of humanity gather to witness a spectacle of death and suffering. God knows. Hebrews makes a point of Jesus being our high priest. And says, this isn't some far-removed high priest who doesn't understand you. This is a high priest that's been where you've been. He's been through the temptations. He didn't sin, but he's been through it. He knows what it's like to feel, to suffer, to go through life as a human being. That's the high priest that we have. First thing we learn about God being on our side is God knows. Second thing is God cares. It's very clear in Scripture. I mean, if you're ever worried, take 1 Peter 5, 7. There, plain as day. God cares for you. So turn your worries over to him. Sometimes it says, cast your anxieties upon him. Yeah, but I'm really good at being anxious. Mm. Not really. You, You need to quit. You weren't made for that. You were made to turn those worries and those anxieties over to God. 1 John 4 says God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. This is the life that we're called to. I mean, if we have the perception about God that He cares and that He loves, then we know how much God loves us, and therefore we can love others. You see, when you get the right perception about God, it not only transforms your own life, it transforms The world you live in. One of the things I love about this congregation is that over the last few years, we have learned to love one another and to love others. And the more we do that, the more we experience what life is like in God. And it's because we've accepted the fact that God loves us, that God cares about this congregation. That the work of the church is not to busy ourselves to do something great, to prove to God that, hey, God, look at us. We're doing something right, aren't we? Will you give us a prize? No. It's about showing God, it's about knowing how much God cares for us 
and then reflecting that and projecting that in our own lives. God knows. God cares. That's why he's on our side. And finally, he's on our side because God is able. There's an important theme that runs through Scripture. And it is, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture, but three times it's mentioned specifically. Is anything too difficult for God? Sometimes it appears as a question. Sometimes it appears as a statement that nothing is too difficult for God. The first time you see it is in Genesis 18. God realizes that salvation is going to have to come about a different way than people being perfect because the world is broken. And so this salvation project to mend the world and to make it better is going to require a people who have faith. And that's all going to start with a man named Abraham. Abraham's getting on in years. I mean, when this starts, he's 75. 25 years later, at the age of 100, he shows up, and there's his wife. She's in her 90s. God finally arrives. They show him hospitality, and, they, and he finally says, Okay, you're going to have a baby. Oh, no wonder his wife starts laughing. She's like, even if this is possible because I can't have children, we're old. And he says, and why is this funny? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And you'll see that theme over and over again, that God accomplishes his purposes. As Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, he chooses the foolish things or the broken things or the imperfect things to shame those who think that salvation comes from perfection, strength, youth, power, wisdom. That God chooses those things that we would never bet on to show His power. Nothing's too difficult for Him. And they do have a child. In Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, God's promise to the people who are in exile, God's promise to the people who feel like there is no hope because they've lost everything that, that mattered to them. They lost the temple. They lost their land. They lost their king. All they've got is the law. And he says, I'm going to restore you. I'm the Lord, the God of all people of the world. Is anything too hard for me? And in Luke 18, Jesus is, is, is preaching about the difficulties of riches and how our reliance on our own power, or our own wealth, is, is going to take us away from God. It's, it's going to uh, turn us away from God. It's hard to trust in Him. And let me tell you this. You, know, you might realize this if you're older. But for those of you who who are younger, I want you to know this. Right now, you may be thinking, you know, in the next 10 years, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be super rich, and then I'll have no problems. Oh, yes, you will. I pray you won't. But that's not going to be the solution of those problems. Jesus warns them, and his apostles say, well, if, if wealth and power aren't the way to overcoming the world then what are we doing? Because we've really got this thing going, Jesus, where you're going to be the big king and everything's going to be great. He says, what's impossible for humanity is possible with God. The message over and over again is God is able. So as you enter into this second healing choice and you know that God is on your side, I want you to remember this, that how God chooses to respond is completely up to him you have to trust that he will and that he's able and that he cares and that he knows it may be that god changes the situation that you're in 
Or it may be that God changes you. There's that moment in Scripture where Paul's writing and he says, I've prayed to God that he'll remove the thorn from my flesh. You know, we get that word now in English, that phrase, the thorn in my side, to mean that thing that constantly bothers you. And everyone loves to speculate on what Paul meant by that. Was he talking about poor eyesight? Was he talking about arthritis? You know, did he, did he, did he have uh, lumbago? I don't even know what lumbago is. And, you know, did he, did he have, you know, what, did he have a literal thorn in his side, you know? I, and, and who knows? But the point is, he asked that something be changed. And the answer from God was, no, I'm not going to change the situation, but I am going to give you grace, more and more grace. And that's what's really going to make a difference. So God might change us. He might change you. He might change your situation, or he might change both. But you've got to ask for help. And that's what's tough sometimes. In Matthew 7, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see something in this. I've got to read it. You can read with me if you want. Matthew 7. A lot of people think that in Matthew 7, Christ just has a few random points that he has to make to finish off the sermon. Not at all. In fact, our first two choices, you can see it here. Remember how last week we talked about helicopter parents or helicopter people, that we want to change everything else, and we think that if we fix everyone else and if we fix everything else, then we'll be okay. We love to be rescuers, because if we can rescue others and change others or set them straight, then we'll be okay. Notice what Jesus says. Don't judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye and then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They'll trample the pearls, and then they'll turn and attack you. But keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents... If your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? Or if they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? The first part of this passage is about judging others. You know, I gave credit to John Baker in his book, Life's Healing Choices. I'm sure that John Baker would give credit to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is laying out the problem here, and he's saying, we often go through life thinking that it's our role to determine what's wrong with everybody else. And they say in, in, in uh, recovery circles, there's a great, there's a great uh, phrase, if you spot it, you got it. So if you're wondering, or wondering why everybody that you encounter is so cynical and they are always miserable and they're always griping, maybe it's not just them. Maybe you're participating in a kind of viral misery that just keeps 
going around infecting others and then they reinfect you. Well, Jesus says, let's back off of the judging others. That's not, that's not going to help us. They're not the problem. But we are, we're not judging others, Jesus. We just want to fix other people. We just want to help other people. You know, I'm a church leader, Lord. I preach. I don't have enough people that I can fix. See, this is, one of the, this is one of the biggest pitfalls for church leaders is that we think that it's our responsibility to fix everybody else. And what's worse is, is that even if you realize that's not the calling of a church leader, then you have people who say, well, it's your job to fix me or fix others. Long ago, I had someone come to me and they say, listen, I want you to find me the verse that tells my boyfriend to quit acting the way he's acting. I said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what, what, what verse is that? I don't know. It's in the Bible somewhere. Just find it. Okay, you know, uh, and, and I went to this verse because I said maybe it's the fact that, you know, you, you, you've got a log in your own eye instead of a sp- and trying to get the speck out of his eye. We're always trying to fix others, and we need to take the stick out of our own eye. We see our hurts, we see our hang-ups, we see our habits in others, and we hate it. And what we need to be doing is turning to God and asking him. This isn't asking God, the doting grandfather, for our, for our um, Christmas list of things that we want. Ask God. He knows what you need. We try to fix what's broken in us by fixing others when we need to go to God and ask him for the help. Ask God. I don't know, though, Benjamin, can I ask God? Yeah, because he cares, he knows, and he's able like no one else is. And he's a top-notch parent. That's what that last part is there about parents. Some of you impress me as parents. I mean, you get everything right. You know how to keep your kids and all the programs. You take care of them. You, you make sure that they're eating the right foods and stuff like that. You're five-star parents. I've never felt like I'm a five-star parent. I figure if the kids got fed, it was a good day. And, you know, if, and, and, and a day when they're not cutting each other up with swords, that was a victory. Um, you know, but, but even a two-star parent like me, or a one-star parent, even a, you know, uh, gets it most of the time. Kid, just ask you for a loaf of bread. Here, give him a rock, you know. Even a one-star parent gets that one, Jesus says. Now, if you get it, if you're the best parent in the world and win all the prizes, or if you're the worst parent in the world and don't, but you get it, if that's the case, then don't you think God much more knows how to take care of you? That's the argument of the parable. So our second healing choice is this, that I choose to believe that God exists and that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. Why don't you say that with me? I choose to believe that God exists and that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. You know, some of us, it seems silly, but we do need to let ourselves hear that you matter to God. It's easy to say that to other people, but I want you to say that you matter to God. You might be thinking, oh, I don't want to burden God. Do you really think you can burden God? 
I mean, he is able. Nothing's too difficult for him. You're not going to help him shoulder the load. It's not if if he's gasping around somewhere saying, boy, running this creation is difficult. Oh, but I've got this wonderful servant who's showing up to help me fix all the broken people. No. We are the broken people. So go to him and know that we matter. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that um, you would put it clearly in our hearts that you care for us, that we matter to you. And Father, knowing that, I pray that we will ask you for the kind of change that you can work in our lives. And we're just going to leave it right there for now. Because so often we come to you and we ask you for change in the world. We ask you for change in the church. We ask you for change in the community. And yet we remove ourselves from that and don't understand that the beginning of change might be in our very heart and mind. And so we ask that you begin there. We seek that, Lord. Open the door to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Now, in our worship, we've always embodied the opportunity for you to ask for help. And I want you to know, you're not asking for help from me or from the elders. You're coming to us as fellow strugglers in this world and saying, I need to ask God for help, and we just want you to know that you're not alone. Now, we'll pray with you. We'll we'll hear your request to be baptized, whatever it is. But if you need that opportunity, there will be some men down here that you can talk to. There will be uh, some of our shepherds in room 100 right back there. Let's stand. Let's sing.